Hey, hey, Prime members, talking to you. You can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Gail King. I'm Anthony Mason. And I'm Tony DeCopo. And this is a CBS This Morning podcast. I'm Rena Nainan, a CBSN anchor. Psychologist and CBS News contributor Dr. Lisa Damore writes the Adolescence column for The New York Times, where she answers questions about parenting. So we decided to take this chance to pick the brain of our expert on all things adolescence. Lisa, thank you for coming. Glad to be here, as always. I want to start with some of your recent columns. One of them is titled, My Friends Serve Underage Kids Alcohol. Should I Speak Up? This was such a great question. So one of the really cool things that has happened in my work at the Times is they've added an AskDrDemore at NewYorkTimes.com email. And so now I can take questions and answer them. And it really lets me get into the nitty-gritty of family life and raising teenagers And so this parent sent a question asking about their college-age kids who are coming home, and it was over the holidays, and their awareness that at another home, good family friends are serving underage kids alcohol. And this was a parent who had made a decision that this was not something they themselves would do and felt really on the horns of a dilemma about whether they should speak up or whether they should talk to their kid about it or whether they should try to step in being well aware all the time that this could also really harm their adult relationship. So in thinking this through, you know, there's a few ways to look at it. One is there's a very straightforward piece that's important to mention, I think, right off the jump, which is that it's illegal to serve somebody else's minor. You can actually, in 31 states, serve alcohol to your own minor child. And that's something that not everyone knows, that in fact it's legal in the majority of states to serve alcohol to your child in your home. But it is illegal across the board to serve to other people's kids. And the consequences can be extremely severe. If you serve a minor child and they leave and get in an accident or hurt somebody else, you are legally on the hook for that. So the first piece is just, it's a bad idea legally. But then there becomes the question of whether or not you should say something to somebody else about their parenting. And the fact of the matter is, mostly people only want answers to questions they've asked. And unsolicited advice tends not to be particularly well-received, however wise (laughs) it is. And so my guidance to this reader who wrote in was to say, talk with your kids about your reasons for why you don't want them to drink underage. And there are reasons to put forward. We know that alcohol and anything pleasurable is actually especially intense in adolescence. And so if there is a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism, that it can actually lay the groundwork for trouble with drinking down the line, especially if binge drinking is involved or frequent drinking. So there are really solid reasons to say, I'd like for you to hold off until adulthood. So talk with your child about your reasons, but also recognize that unless your adult friends are asking your opinion on whether or not they should serve kids in their own home, 
it may not actually go so well to try to put it forward. And I think this happens all through parenting with teenagers, where the rules in your home are not the same Mm. as the rules in other people's homes. And for me, this just feels like a door being flung open to talk about the rules in any given family, why we have the rules we have, why we're in disagreement about the rules that other family has. And I will take any opportunity to have those kinds of conversations with kids. It's one thing I've picked up from you over the years is transparency, that no matter what age your child is, transparency is so important. It is. And I think there's a neat kind of one-two punch you can do here where you can both say, here's the rule in the family. You know, lay down the law and say, we have this value or we hold this standard and we're going to ask you to toe this line. And then say, and here is our reasoning. And here's where people disagree with us. And here's where we see where they're coming from. And here's where we disagree with where they're coming from. But to both exercise one's authority, make it clear to your own child, we have rules and we live by them. But also then make it clear that you want them to be a thinker and you want them to think with you about how decisions get made and what the consequences are of our decisions. You talked about the questions that you've been getting. Some of our listeners actually submitted questions on social media. Lisa asks, do you recommend medication for a nine-year-old who suffers from anxiety? Anxiety is such, I mean, you wrote a fantastic book about anxiety. It's such a big deal. It has really come into the center of a lot of what we're talking about when we talk about mental health and kids. So Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls came out a year ago and has really found an audience, I think, because people are so concerned about anxiety in kids. So this question about medication. So I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a psychologist, so I don't myself medicate, and I don't know the context behind this particular question. But here's how we would think through a particular question like this. So the first thing I would want to have happen is to have the child actually evaluated by a psychologist, someone who doesn't prescribe but is really good at helping to treat anxiety with non-medical interventions. One of the things that I think has gotten lost in the discussion about anxiety is the fact that psychologists really, really know how to treat anxiety. That of all of the things we diagnose, it's probably one of the things we're best at treating without medication. And the strategies we use tend to be in the cognitive behavioral world, meaning that we help people to examine their own thinking because often in anxiety, there's an exaggerated fear of something or an underestimation of one's ability to deal with the difficulties one faces. So we help to sort of confront those thinking irregularities, or I guess in some ways we would call them kind of irrationalities. And then the other thing we're really good at doing, and this seems so simple that I think people can blow right past it, is that a lot of how we respond to anxiety is a physical event. That when we're anxious, our heart starts to thump and our breathing feels constricted and sometimes we feel queasy. And I think that gives people a sense that anxiety is out of control because it's taken over their body. But we actually know a huge amount about why the body reacts that way. And we also know how to get the body to stop reacting that way. And it's things as simple as deep breathing Mm. and focusing and sometimes muscle relaxation. And I do think there can be a quality where it just feels like that's too easy or that's too soft sounding. But in fact, they're ridiculously powerful interventions. Mm. So what I would love to see is first, let's see if we can put that child in the driver's seat themselves around their own anxiety, using cognitive and behavioral methods and breathing and relaxation to feel back in control of their anxiety. And if that's not working, or if they are so anxious they can't actually get themselves to even work on those strategies, then maybe medication is worth evaluating. But I'd like to try a non-medical intervention first. So there are options before medicine? Lots of options. And then I, that's something I wish I could take out billboards. We are great at treating anxiety, and you've got lots of options for this. Mm. Linda asks, not personal to me, but of a concern to many, I'm sure, what to do when you're a parent of a known bully? Okay, so if you are a parent and your child is a bully 
and everyone knows it. I have to say, I think our first instinct can go toward the shaming or accusatory stance on this. But the longer I've worked, the more I feel actually profound empathy for that parent, that it is really frightening and upsetting as a parent to come to terms with the fact that your kid can be mean and sometimes very, very mean. So I'm going to presume in this question that the parent of the known bully is aware that their child is a bully. And I think there are a couple things they can do. We know from the research that in helping kids who have been willing to abuse their power in bullying ways, you have to be completely clear with them that that is out of the question, that they are not allowed to treat children in that way at all, and also put in real consequences for that behavior. This often means working with a school. I also would want a parent of a known bully to feel that they have some privacy within their community, that people are talking and talking and talking about their kid. Because this is, I think, one of the things that I find really painful to watch as a psychologist is that, you know, kids go through difficult times and they go through difficult phases. And not all kids conduct themselves in the ways that we would really wish they did every single year of school. And so even the word bully to me is a pretty intense word. And I'm always a little cringy when I hear parents on the playground talking about, oh, that kid's a bully or she's Mm -hmm. a mean girl or things like that. Because I just think, oh man, that's a powerful label. And I really hope that that kid can shake that label. And so I would want the parent of the bully to confront the child very directly and lay down very clear rules. And I would want the parents in the community to be extremely judicious in talking about that child, especially using a word that is hard to shake. Mm -hmm. We talk about bullying, but I also want to talk about how you talk to children about death, especially in light of NBA basketball superstar Kobe Bryant and the death of him and his daughter, Gianna, all nine people aboard that helicopter. He was a hero. He was a peer. He was a father. How do you address death, especially when it's in the headlines and unavoidable? Yeah, I mean, that one, there's so many different elements of that tragedy that the first thing I actually would want to find out is what is the child reacting to? Because like you said, there's a million layers just to this one tragedy that there were nine people, that he was famous, that his child was on the helicopter with him, that it came as a total surprise, that it feels very out of the blue. And so the first question I would really have on my mind is what part of that tragedy seems to have affected your child? So I think the question I would have parents ask is to look for an opening that it's coming and then to say, what do you think about that? And to see where the child begins. I will say I have two daughters and I made sure both of them were aware of it before they went back to school on Monday. You talked to them about I did. It. And, and, I, and I think that that's another gesture that we can do as parents is that once stuff gets to school and once it's being discussed, you know, in the lunchroom and on the playground, it often takes on a life of its own. And often there's a lot of inaccuracy that gets involved in that. And so I, especially to my nine-year-old, I said, and she was not aware of who Kobe Bryant is. And I said, you know, you should know that this famous basketball player was killed in an accident. And then later in the day when the news came out about his daughter, I actually felt she also needed to know that because I thought this is going to come up on the playground too. And she had, you know, she said, oh, that's really, really sad. And then she was sad about the daughter. And then when she came home from school on Monday, I said, did this come up at school? And she said, yeah, a couple kids mentioned it, Mm -hmm. but it was clear that there wasn't that much more to it. So the bottom line on all of this, I think, is two great principles to have in mind. One is preparation. Anytime there's something very hard that a child is going to have to take in and metabolize, we want to give them warning. So we might say, I have some really hard news or this is going to make you very sad. And then we tell them what we know. Or in the case with kids going back to school on Monday, I was trying to make sure that my younger child especially wasn't side, you know, mm-hmm. sideswiped mm-hmm. by this news. Then the other is figure out where the child is with it and respond to that and only that. 
I think sometimes we go try way. to cover all the yeah. territory and the child was only interested in one corner of it. Uh, another question from a viewer says, my eight-year-old son still throws epic tantrums. Any idea on how to decrease the incurrence? Oh, man. Tantrums are really hard. And I feel like tantrums even follow you through adulthood in some... They can. They can. <laughs> well, so the first rule of tantrums... <laughs> is that you don't try to talk to a child while they are having a tantrum. There is no capacity. Which Lisa is very hard. I mean, just this weekend, I tried to talk my child through a tantrum and that it was, it did not go well. They are not in a position to make good use of your rational advice or your yelling <laughs> under those conditions. There's nothing that can be done. So I think, you know, so long as the child is safe, I think the first thing you say is, you are really upset. Try to take some deep breaths. When you feel like you are yourself again, we can talk about what happened. Mm. But in my experience, that when a child starts to become very, very escalated, when the parent joins them in that escalation and is trying to intervene or stop things, it actually continues to keep things going. That the child is now reacting to the parent's intense feelings too. So I would have the parent do everything they can to offer just a very containing response. You are deeply upset. I can see this is uncomfortable for you. Do you want me to stay with you? Do you want to be alone? We'll talk when you are in a better place. Then, outside the tantrum, when the child is calm, I would talk with them and say, what do you think happened? And what got you so upset? And how can we catch that earlier? And I really do think of it tantrums as being almost like an accelerating process. And if you can jump in on it early, you may be able to get it under control. But once it is off to the races, you just have to wait until you can later have a conversation about what happened that felt so big and so bad. We only have a few moments left, but I want to ask you one quick question. What would you say are some of the most common questions that parents ask you? Have you ever been stumped by a question? So I will say far and away, the number one is social media. <laughs> yeah, social I think media. that parents, yeah. and understandably so, feel completely confounded by this. And I get it. We didn't grow up with it. We don't really understand it. It feels like an enormous and powerful part of our kids' lives. I will give you one simple answer on this. Not that this is the only answer, but in terms of what can be said in, you know, just a, a moment about this, whatever else, do not let kids take their phones in their rooms, especially at night. Mm. That is the easiest, simplest thing one can do to keep some degree of control over what goes on on social media and to keep it contained. And in terms of when I get stumped, I will say there are two aspects of raising a child that I find to be irreducibly difficult and for which there's no straightforward solution. So one is when children are in the third or fourth grade and they start to look around and notice all of the skills and capabilities of the kids around them, which usually does not happen till third or fourth grade. And they go from feeling like those super duper first and second graders who run the universe to realizing they're one of many and that there are kids who have skills that they don't have. And this makes them feel awful. And really sad. And it's one of those things that can be managed. We can say, yep, and if you work hard, you can grow. And if you give it extra effort, you can increase your skill set. But there is a kind of a coming up against the sense of, oh, I'm not going to be the best at everything always that is painful and painful for parents to watch and that is unavoidable and needs to be managed. And the other is the reality that we cannot guarantee the safety of our children, especially in adolescence. And I say this as a psychologist and also as a mother of teenagers, there is something irreducibly painful about knowing that fundamentally your children will leave the house and go out in the world and we can coach them, give them every strategy, every idea, every support. And there is an element of loss of control as our kids get older. And that is people want me to solve that for them. And there is no mm. solution I have come across yet. Dr. Lisa Damore, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to the CBS This Morning podcast. Be sure to subscribe to get daily podcast originals. You can watch the CBS This Morning broadcast Monday through Saturday from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. on your local CBS station or live on the CBS All Access app. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you. But all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before, or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is our podcast. I'm here with my producer, Becca. Becca, what can people expect on the podcast? The extended moments, for sure. Where can people get that? On The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert, wherever you get your podcasts. I use the internet. 